hope, I'm glad we, I'm hoping feeling kind of encouraged and upbeat now because it's about to get a little bit depressing. Um, <laughs> it gets good at the end, but I'm just pre-warning you. So we're going to be concluding um, the penultimate chapter of 1 Corinthians as Paul talks about the resurrection. <clears throat> um, has everyone enjoyed it? Yeah. Enjoy the series? Yeah. I've enjoyed it. And one of the things that stood out to me is just how unchanging the human condition is. The Corinthians were contending with the pagan practices of their day, and we're basically contending with basically the same stuff. It's just repackaged and rebranded for our generation, but it's very, very similar. Because um, Satan wants to corrupt and lie about God's good order, his good design. And this includes the resurrection. It shouldn't be surprising that there were skeptics to the resurrection because Satan wants to try and um, undo the hope that we have in Jesus and undo the truth that we have in God. Um, I don't know if you've ever heard um, Jordan Peterson. For those of you who don't know him, he's kind of a popular psychologist and media commentator. He's not a Christian as far as I'm aware, but he has spoken frequently in recent years about the importance of Christianity, of Jesus, and the Bible. But one of the things he struggles with is the physical, literal resurrection of Jesus. He would rather um, tuck it away as sort of a, a metaphor. But in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is stressing the importance of a literal, physical resurrection of Jesus. Because when we understand that truth it radically affects the way we live day to day. So let me just summarize the context of the preceding verses because it's going to be really important to understanding the verses we're going to be going through today. So Paul, first, two weeks ago, you can go and catch up um, with it online. <clears throat> he establishes the historical fact that Jesus was raised from the dead. It was prophesied in scriptures long before Jesus came, and then when he was risen, over 500 people, eyewitnesses, saw Jesus' resurrected body. Then he explains why it's essential that Jesus was raised from the dead. It was, um, sorry, our whole faith hinges on the fact that Jesus was raised from the dead. If he didn't rise from the dead, then neither shall we, and our faith and life in general is utterly pointless. Following Jesus becomes useful only as a moral pursuit, but with no resurrection, there is no judgment, there is no justice, and those that proclaim him, those to their own suffering who proclaim him, are the most pitied. We are to be pitied. It is pitiful if Jesus did not raise from the dead. And there's one word that comes up repeatedly in this chapter. I don't know if you've noticed it as we've, come, as we've gone through it. And that is the word vanity. Our lives and our labor are in vain without the resurrection. And that's why Paul says, without the resurrection, let us eat and drink. Because tomorrow we die. It's sort of a, if I'm going down, you're coming down with me kind of attitude. In Ecclesiastes uh, 2 18 to 23, he says it really well. He says, um, the writer says, I came to hate all my hard work on the earth, for I must leave to others everything I have earned. And who can tell whether my successor will be wise or foolish? Yet they will control everything I've gained by my skill and hard work under the sun. How meaningless. So I gave up in despair, questioning the value of all my hard work in this world. Some people work wisely with knowledge and skill. They must leave the fruit of their efforts to someone who hasn't worked for it. 
This too is meaningless, a great tragedy. So what do people get in this life for all their hard work and anxiety? Their days of labor are filled with pain and grief. Even at night, their minds cannot rest. It is all meaningless. Eternity is written on the hearts of all people. And so death is the great enemy, bringing utter meaningless to our existence. A couple of weeks ago, my son in bed was, he was talking to my wife, Lois, and he, he questioned, he said, Mum, is, is Jesus really real? And for the first time in his life, he sort of had this moment where he was considering the possibility of Jesus not being real, which is really handy for this talk, but he actually, he had a, a, a genuine panic, and he was like, Mum, Mum, I don't want to die. I, I don't want to die forever. And he, he had a, a proper panic. And it was as if eternity was being snatched from him in that moment. And I was talking to him about it afterwards, and I wanted to affirm that feeling. I said, actually, that is the right feeling we should have at the possibility of Jesus not being real. But then I was able to tell him the good news, that because Jesus is real, because he rose, so too shall we, and we'll live forever. And that is our hope. And it brings us to our passage today, and the big idea is that the hope of resurrection glory brings purpose to the vanity of life. So I'm just going to read some of the key verses from the passage, so I'll just let you know when to, it's actually, it should be on the screen, but I'll let you know when to skip down. So starting in verse 35, 1 Corinthians 15, if you haven't found it already. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to come, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. And skip to verse 42. So is it with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. And then verse 54. When the perishable puts on imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through Christ, through Lord, um, our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So, verses 35 to 41, the resurrection is displayed in creation. So we start this passage with Paul posing two kinds of questions that he might get asked based on the resurrection. How are the dead raised, and what kind of body will they have? I don't know about you, but I sort of get the impression that he's used to answering these kinds of questions when discussing the resurrection of the dead, because he did it frequently. I don't know if you've ever seen um, apologetics debates but they always seem to know the questions that are going to get asked them. They answer a question, and then they know the question that's coming next. It's that sort of idea. But I, I just want to say before we continue, because he calls these people uh, foolish, but are we called to blind, unquestioning faith? No. The truth is to be weighed and tested. If we're to base our lives on this truth, it needs to be able to hold up under the microscope. And the Bible tells us to meditate on God's word. And that would include questioning it. 
Because when we ask questions of the truth, we get answers to the truth. So why then is Paul calling calling these people foolish? Well, Romans 1, 19, 22 gives us some sort of indication. And it says, they know the truth about God because he has made it obvious to them. For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and sky. Through everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature. They have no excuse for not knowing God. Yes, they knew God, but they wouldn't worship him as God or even give him thanks. And they began to think up foolish ideas of what God was like. As a result, their minds became dark and confused. Claiming to be wise, they instead became utter fools. So God's nature and attributes are displayed in creation. He's made it plain to see. And he's describing people that don't acknowledge him as Lord and instead make up their own ideas um, of what he's like. In claiming to be wise, remember, that was one of the Corinthians' issues. We kind of discussed that in the early chapters. They They were claiming to be wise. They became utter fools. So the issue is with the attitude of our questioning. So in verse 34, um, he tells them to wake up from their drunken stupor. They have no knowledge of God. And these questions are coming from people who aren't looking to know the truth, but rather have made up their own ideas about God and simply ask questions from a position of pride and unbelief, trying to expose it. Um, And Acts 17, it talks about the people of Athens who would spend their time in nothing Um, except telling and hearing of something new. And then 2 Timothy 3 talks about people who are ever learning, but never coming to the knowledge of the truth. This is foolishness. Asking questions with no real desire to submit to the answers is foolishness. But let me encourage you, never stop asking questions. Some of my biggest breakthroughs, as I'm sure some of yours have, been through asking questions. Our questions need to come not from a position of pride, but from a position of humility. Instead of claiming to be wise and becoming fools, approach the word in humility, knowing you're a fool, but seeking to be wise. Jesus tells us to ask, seek, and knock, and the door will be open to you. It's his joy to reveal the truth to those who would receive it. So, Paul exposes their foolishness, and then he expands on the idea of God revealing the truth of the resurrection in creation, namely through the planting of a seed. And so he says, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other kind of grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. Now this is really, really cool. Because Paul is saying here that your current body is a seed compared to the resurrection body. Our bodies are simply vessels, just like a seed. And what is planted is a mere fragment of what is to come. So... Try and imagine, you know, for a moment that you've never seen a seed before. A tree, sorry. Never seen a tree. And someone showed you an acorn. There is no way you will be able to comprehend the potential of that small seed. 
at the height of an oak tree, the depth of the root system, the strength of the trunk. My, uh, my brother-in-law is an amazing builder. And uh, I was helping him a few years ago as he was constructing this oak beam roof. And I could not believe, for anyone that's lifted oak before, I could not believe how heavy um, that, that wood was. Um, and then to, to look at the, the beautiful oak, you know, oak beams afterwards and consider that it had probably come from a handful of acorns is, <laughs> excuse the pun, nuts. <laughs> and it should encourage us about our hope that we have in Jesus. Isaiah 61 says that he, Jesus came that we may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. And it is so foolish for us to live for this life alone. Our bodies are nothing in comparison to what they will be. And this life is a shadow of what is to come. You have been made for so much more. And our earthly bodies are then to be used for training in godliness with an eternal perspective. The Bible describes the church as a bride. We are a bride waiting for a bridegroom. And we are to make ourselves ready for the bridegroom when he comes, who is Jesus. So are you doing this? Does your life reflect someone who has a vision for eternity? Because, as I said, it will radically affect the way that you live day to day, as Paul will reveal later on. So, we've established that our current bodies are seeds of that which is to come. But what will our new body be like? Well, I can't tell you because it doesn't say. But I can tell you that our resurrection body will be gloriously fitted for glory. So, what do we mean by that? What is glory? Well, glory is the God, the unique God-given value of something. And the Bible has loads of examples of glory. You'll read it over and over again through different things. So a few chapters ago in Corinthians, it was talking about a woman's long hair being her glory. And um, I always tell my wife, you know, I love my wife's long hair. And it was one of the things I remembered when I first met her, she sort of to me, she just sort of floated over to me. And, I could, and her hair just like, <laughs> just flowing behind her. And uh, I love it. I always, I always say to her, it's your glory, it's your glory, I love it. Um, and then Aaron's priestly garments in the Old Testament um, were for glory. So clothing can be glory. And I just mentioned a bride. A bride in a wedding dress is, is, is glorious and special. And uh, Joseph, he instructs his brothers to go and tell um, their dad, uh, Jacob, about his glory in Egypt. And God has created um, aspects of his creation with unique glory, value, and splendor. And though they might differ from uh, individually, they all speak of God's eternal glory, God's splendor. And so, in verse 39, Paul describes all the different bodies in creation. So he's got humans, animals birds and fish, and then you've got the heavenly bodies, um, you've got the sun, the moon, the stars, and each has its own glory. And so it is with the resurrection of the dead. And what you'll notice about each of these bodies is that none of them are suitably fit for the place of the other. So humans are best suited for homes, uh, fish for the sea, 
birds for the trees, animals for the wild places, and then you've got the heavenly bodies that are made fit for the sky. The same is true of the resurrection of the dead. It will have its own glory, and our body will be suited for glory itself, that being the new kingdom. So when Jesus comes to set up the new kingdom and redeem the earth back to the Father, we will need a body fit to inhabit it. And there's one fundamental thing that has to happen for this to happen, um, that must be put in place sorry, for this to happen. And that is our earthly bodies must be exchanged for a spiritual one. So verses 42 to 49, our earthly body must be exchanged. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. You see, our bodies are not fit to inhabit the eternal kingdom of God. This is because we have been made in the likeness and the form of Adam. And verse 44 says, As was the man of dust, that's Adam, so too are those who were of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, that's Jesus, so also are those who are of heaven. So we are like Adam who came from this earth, and because of sin and corruption, so too have we inherited sin and corruption. And the result of this is that our bodies weaken as we get older. I still like to think of myself as a spring chicken, but it, my body feels weaker than it did 10 years ago. I play football on Monday nights, and it gets harder every week, as much as I enjoy it. And our flesh is sinful as well, isn't it? We have dishonorable lusts and wants. We do the wrong things. We seek the wrong things. We worship the wrong things. This is inherited from Adam. We will still be judged for it, but it came from Adam. And our fleshly sinful nature is not fit for the glory of the coming kingdom. And remember, the Lord is making all things new. So our earthly body that inherits death through Adam points towards a spiritual body that inherits life in Jesus. Adam is described here as being a living being, but Jesus is described as being a life-giving spirit. So the idea here is that a broken vessel points to one that is not. You know, in a similar way, um, you might have experienced this too, but I've heard of a lot of people recently that have come to the knowledge of the Lord, who have come to Jesus, come to saving faith, not initially because they had a realization of the goodness and um, the splendor of God, but actually because they had an acute, um, under, uh, they, they were just acutely aware of the evil in the world. And they thought, well, if there's evil, there must be good. I can see lies, so there must be truth. And it's similar in this, if there is an earthly body, sorry, it says the passage, if there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Um, and just to cl clarify, this doesn't mean that we will become spirits. Remember, Jesus, when he rose, he had a physical body. He wasn't a spirit, but was spiritual in nature. This meaning imperishable, glorious, powerful, and sinless. So, the weak, dishonorable, perishable, sinful body of Adam points towards the powerful, 
glorious, imperishable, sinful body of Jesus. Romans 5.19 says, For just as through the disobedience of the one man the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of one man the many will be made righteous. So Adam is the first fruit of a perishable body, and all his seed will die. But Jesus is the first fruit of an imperishable body, and all his seed shall live. So 1 Peter 1.23 says, We've been born again of imperishable seed through the living and enduring word of God. Verse 50. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the imperishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised, imperishable, and we shall all be changed. For this perishable body must put on imperishable. This mortal life, mortal body must put on immortality. So, for those in Christ, death is the pathway to life, eternal life. And our earthly bodies must die. Our earthly bodies need to be laid aside. We cannot fully bear the image of Jesus if we are still in the vessel of Adam. We need a vessel of heaven in order to fully bear the image of Christ. And this is why we need to be born again. When we are born again, our spirits are made alive. Remember, the Bible says we are otherwise dead in our sins. So when we are born again, the spirit of life comes to dwell within us, and the process of being conformed into the image of Jesus begins. All of us who follow Jesus are now being conformed into his likeness. We who follow Jesus are all being conformed into his likeness. I remember a few chapters ago, it talked in uh, 1 Corinthians 13 about love being patient and kind, not envying, not boasting, not self-seeking, not keeping record of wrongs. It doesn't delight in evil, but it rejoices in the truth. Love always protects, it always trusts, it always hopes, and it always perseveres. This is what Jesus is like. And we are being conformed from within to reflect that image. And our resurrection bodies will be the final part of that process being fully realized. So um, verses 1 and 2 of of 1 Corinthians 15 talks about the good news in which we stand and are being saved. This will happen. It's a fact. This is our hope. And at the sounding of the last trumpet, the mission of the church will be over, the doorway to repentance will be shut, And those of us in Christ will be changed from glory to glory. If you are dead, you will be raised with a new body. And those who are still alive at that time will be changed in an instant. Whether you are dead or you're alive, we will all be made alive with new bodies. And we will all be changed in an instant. The pain, the frustration, the limitations, the brokenness 
of our body will be changed into something much greater. Hallelujah. That is amazing. Verse 54, when the perishable puts on imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Death is our enemy. Eternity is written on the hearts of men and, is, and death is the enemy of our soul. When we are raised imperishable, death will be destroyed. Jesus will once and for all destroy the enemy of our souls. And this passage that he's referring to is taken from a prophecy in Hosea. And it was prophesied long before Jesus came. And when Jesus came, he fulfilled over 300 prophecies made about himself. So this can give us assurance that this one too will also be fulfilled. Do not leave it too late. There will be a last trumpet. There is a time when the free gift of repentance will not be there for you. Do not leave it too late. The free gift of repentance will no longer be extended to sinners. Turn to Jesus. So, verse 56. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. So, what this is saying is that when Jesus delivered the law to Moses, it resulted in death because of sin. And the Old Covenant is, is actually called the ministry of death. Romans 7.13 says, But how can that be? Did the law, which is good, cause my death? Of course not. Sin was used, uh, sorry, sin was used, sin used what was good to bring about my condemnation to death. So sin hijacked the law in order to bring forth death. The law was good, it pointed towards something that was good, but sin then had the opportunity to rebel and in so doing brought about death. So a helpful example of this would be Adam and Eve. Uh, they were told one thing, they were given one law if you like, and they were told do not eat from the uh, tree of knowledge of good and evil. Now before that command was given, they were in ignorance. But as soon as God told them not to eat from it, morality was then placed on the tree. And they now had the choice to either obey or rebel. And as we know, Satan came to deceive them. Um, and Adam and Eve chose to eat the fruit of the tree in rebellion, giving way to death and decay. And as I said, we inherited sin and death from Adam and is why our bodies cannot inherit the a new kingdom without a new body. So, verse 57. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So, in summary so far, Jesus died a physical death and rose again as the first fruits of all who have died. Because of this, so will um, we rise again. If he did not rise again, then neither shall we, and our faith is pointless, and our labor in the Lord is vanity. In fact, all life is vanity. It's completely pointless. But thanks be to God that we who have died in Christ will rise again. And in so doing, death will finally be destroyed, and we will receive new, 
imperishable, sinless bodies to inhabit the eternal kingdom that Jesus will come to establish and reign over. Verse 58. Therefore, my dear brothers, my beloved brothers. So in other words, because of this truth, because of this fact, there are implications and applications. As I said at the start, the truth radically changes our worldview and the way that we live day to day. The whole of chapter 15, it feels, is laying a foundation for this last sentence. Everything before is information for us to understand, glorious, exciting, amazing information, but with that information, there is application. So here it is, verse 58. Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So, because we have a hope in a resurrected body, our labor is not in vain. Thanks to the victory we have in Christ, our labor has eternal consequence and eternal significance. Because now, we are under a different master. We are under a different economy. And we have a different purpose. To build and demonstrate the glorious kingdom to come. Now our attitude changes for if I'm going down, you're coming with me, to because I know I will be raised, I will make sure that you will be raised with me. And notice he says, our labor in the Lord. And this is important because outside of the Lord, our labor is still in vain. Our labor is still in vanity. You could have two people doing exactly the same job, one for the glory of the Lord and one for not. And the Bible would call the one that is not for the Lord a dead work. Right at the beginning of Corinthians, it says in chapter 3 about works being tested. And those built on the foundation of Jesus will stand the test. Those built on the foundation of anything else will be burnt up. So, what kind of things constitute to labor in the Lord? Well, think of anything you are doing because of Jesus. Maybe it's the way you're raising, raising your children. There are sacrifices to raising your children in the Lord, and it can be painful. Maybe it's how you're going out of your way to love your neighbor. Why bother if Jesus didn't rise from the dead? Why would you waste your time going out of your way to love your enemy? But because Jesus rose from the dead, we bother because we want to display the love of him who first loved us so that they might discover the truth and so to be raised to eternal life. Be encouraged that your labor in the Lord is not unseen. And you might have come today and just thought, what is the point in this? What is the point in my effort? No one knows, no one sees. What are the eternal consequences? I can't even see the fruit. And, you know, we saw at, um, we, I think it's 1 Corinthians 3, it talks about Paul uh, planted Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. We are not responsible for fruit. We're responsible for labor. We might not see the fruit in our lifetime, but we're responsible for labor. We can tr- uh, the labor. We can trust in the Lord to bear the fruit, and it will not be unseen. Putting out the chairs, playing in the music, helping in the kids' ministry. Maybe some of you have uh, labored in prayer and it was really tough. Maybe some of you are evangelizing and you think, I'm sowing this seed, I'm giving the gospel, I see no fruit. It is not unseen. It has eternal consequence. This Christian life is called a narrow path. And whatever God 
whatever way God is leading you on it, whatever task he has called you to, remain steadfast and immovable. Keep going. There is eternal significance and eternal reward for us to come. Matthew 16 says, Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? What shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Now, John said this week, the ultimate reward is God himself. Remember at the start how I was saying... um, All glory points to God. Well, all the good things that we enjoy on this earth are created by the good God himself. All the goodness that we experience is an expression of the good God himself. The reward, therefore, is glory and goodness himself, God himself. So let us have an eternal perspective, not living for this world, but living for for eternity, investing in spiritual things and laboring steadfastly in the work of the Lord. Jesus came, died, and was resurrected so that we too can be resurrected with new imperishable bodies. And because of this truth, your labor today is not in vain.